ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Um, our, our goal so far on Sunday evenings is to look at some of Solomon's writings. Uh, we went through uh, the Lady Wisdom passage of, of Proverbs 8-9. We looked at Song of Solomon uh, last time. And uh, there are two psalms in some way attributed to Solomon. And this is the first of those. And I think it is worth our, our time looking at it. Um, my goal is for us to also look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a more complicated book, uh, but I, I thought the Psalms are always a, a joy to look at. So Psalm 72, which is right after Psalm 71. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. You'll notice the subscript says of Solomon. We'll talk about that here in a minute. We'll start in verse one here. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him uh, who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May go to Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May the people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask, um, as we always do, that you would show up in a mighty way, that we would see your work in this passage, for it is um, pressing for, for our current situation. So you open up our entire being that we may be more like Jesus, that we too may pray for our civic leaders. And as always, Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. Every four years, as you know, the president or the United States pauses to inaugurate its president for the next four years. This is always a big occasion uh, in our civic life. It involves a parade, swearing in ceremony, uh, a, a significant inaugural speech, and an endless night of dancing and celebration. The inauguration of our first president, President George Washington, here's a famous painting of that event. It was particularly special because what America was venturing to do was unique in human history. And what America was, was doing, it had no context in that America was brand new. All right? and, and one thing it knew is that it didn't want to do things like England did things. After all, they sort of like revolted. However, 
virtually everyone in power this time were British, right? And so what they knew was the English government, and they were under the rule of the English government. And so when it came to inaugurating the president, as opposed to having a king, they were concerned about it looking too much like a monarchical uh, ceremony. Regardless, it was full of hope, it was full of promise, it was full of pomp. In a rare diary entry during this period, we we get some insight into what Washington was thinking as he was uh, anticipating this event. On April the 16th, 1789, he wrote, About 10 o'clock, I bade adieu to Mount Vernon, to private life, and to domestic felicity. That's a word we need to bring back. And with a mind oppressed with more anxious and painful sensations than I have words to express, set out for New York. And with the best dispositions to render service to my country in obedience to its call, but with less hope of answering its expectations. Washington had uh, a brief ceremony by which he gave the same oath of office that every president since has given. He did add, I believe, four words at the end. And those words you may be familiar with, so help me God. In fact, when he gave the oath, hardly anyone could hear him. But when he said, so help me God, which he added to the oath, he said it to where everyone could hear him. He bowed down and kissed his Bible. Um, I I did read a whole book about the inauguration of the president this past week. It's a fascinating subject. One of my favorite stories comes uh, in contrast to Washington, who uh, was quite nervous in his march towards New York to be inaugurated. Of course, Washington, D.C. didn't exist yet. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was sort of the opposite. Reagan was for notorious for uh, loving to sleep, and the morning of his inauguration, he had to be woken up because he was in a deep sleep. I just love that. I love that. That is typical Reagan uh, there. But ceremony, of course, is important. We launch our marriages with a large ceremony, and we welcome a new administration at the federal government and even state government with a ceremony. Ceremonies indicate matters of significance and they allow us to reflect on the one hand where we have come from and also to dream, to anticipate where we might go. The crowning of a new king in the ancient world was really no different. The first of two Solomonic Psalms, uh, uh, this one may not have been written by him. You, you'll notice the subscript there simply says of Solomon. It doesn't say by Solomon. And you'll notice there that the, there, there's, there's that end note there at the end. It's verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so, so, so we don't really know what to do with this psalm. And as some want to put it later on in the, in the life of Israel, uh, one popular option is the rise of Hezekiah, the, cere- the inaugural ceremony of Hezekiah, the crowning of him. After all, he saw himself as a Solomon-like figure, leading Israel back to a time of righteousness. Some see this as being written by David as verse 20 might indicate. So David has written a psalm that would have been sang, a prayer that would have been read at the crowning of his heir. And you have options in between. Maybe Solomon did write it for his son. We simply do not know. But clearly, it is we are to connect this psalm with the rule and reign of David. Regardless, we are certain that this is a royal psalm Uh, that would have been in the context of the crowning of a king. And it celebrates while looking hopeful towards the future of this king's reign. And in the end, of course, we see that all of this points to Christ. What is fascinating is, is that the language is 
so exaggerated, it can only be fulfilled in Christ. So we're, keep that in mind as we go through this, that, that it can only be fulfilled in the messianic kingdom. And that's where we ultimately want to look. Well, being that this is a prayer, as much of a psalm, we are given some insight into what should we pray for? What should we hope for as believers in connection to our government officials? Here's the first one we see in this text, and that is that we are called to pray for justice. Now, we've already said that this is a prayer, right? The, the first few verses make this, I think, abundantly clear. Give the king your justice, O God. So it's right there in, in the very beginning that this is a prayer to God, uh, interceding on behalf of their king who is being crowned, that he would, through the king, give justice. The language there in verse 1 to 3, let the righteousness of God rule through the king is the big idea. In the ancient world, the king was the public face of God, much in the same way that the priest was the religious face of God in the religious life of the nation. And as you can imagine, this is a heavy burden that public figures must carry. The hope was that the king would submit himself to the divine, and as a result, the nation would prosper. And so when kings would serve themselves, the nation would suffer. But when the king would serve the nation, even at the cost of himself, the nation would prosper. This is why to this day we refer to this as public service. It is the Christian ethic that understands that the best Leadership is selfless service. Our interests and wants are, are subservient to those who we lead. But what does, to, what does it mean to rule with justice in the context of this psalm? Three things to look at. What does it mean to rule with justice? And how are we to pray specifically for the justice of our land? The first is equality. Equality. Um, you'll notice there in verse 2, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Go down to verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. One of the most iconic and popular image of the West is, without a doubt, Lady Wisdom, right? We were familiar with this. She has the scales of justice in one hand, a sword of justice in another. But perhaps most prominent is that Lady Justice is blindfolded. She was inspired by the Roman goddess uh, Justitia. I don't know. I made up that pronunciation. You, you, you do the best you can. By the 16th century, we found that Lady Justice was blindfolded, and that became an image of equal justice under law. That is, that justice doesn't look at who is rich, who is poor, who can afford all, uh, fancy lawyers and who can't, who is black or white, male or female, uh, who is tall, who is short, whatever it, it might be, but that justice is and must be blind. And that is rooted in a biblical ethic. You understand that this is unique in world history, this sort of idea. It's really just Judaism and Christianity that has adopted this. And we've adopted it because we are equally made in the image of God, and God himself is impartial. Let me give you a few references here. Acts 10, so Peter said, Truly I understand God shows no partiality. What does Peter mean by that? God loves Gentiles as much as he loves Jews. That seems obvious to us, but that only seems obvious to us because we have the New Testaments. 
We have the Bible. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. Psalm 98, which I didn't, uh, or I bet it's down, I had issues with the text, why it's so bold. Psalm 98.9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Just societies are impartial. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Notice there that you are to show no partiality either to the rich or to the poor. We often think it is a partial treatment to the powerful, but what we're increasingly seeing is those who are supposedly the weak, those who can claim victimhood. The issue is, Equality across the board. Same thing in Proverbs 29, which again, is, is, it's getting cut it off. That, that's my fault. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who it exacts gifts tears it down. Should not be bribed. The gospel itself is impartial. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The psalm highlights the inequality between the rich and the poor. And no doubt we could add countless other forms of inequality uh, in our society. Blind justice, again, is a gift of Christianity. And so if there is to be justice, if the king is to rule justly in a land of justice, we must be, there must be an emphasis on equality. The second emphasis here is prosperity. Although, uh, look, look there in, in verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. And then you can go down to verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. Although it is possible for a nation to, to, be, to prosper economically while dwelling in unrighteousness, Long-term prosperity is tied directly to moral faithfulness. That is something we have lost as a nation. You cannot separate people of integrity with economic prosperity. We see this in the Bible. There are periods where Israel prospers economically and prospers in other forms, but it's a short-term benefit. But when people... When you cannot do business with people and trust them, you will not prosper economically. It's really not math uh, or, or, or it's not really um, uh, rocket science here. Long-term prosperity is tied to a nation's moral integrity and faith. That is made abundantly clear there in verse 3, that the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. It's parallelism that the people would prosper in righteousness. And that comes from the king. Now, it comes from the bottom up, yes. But remember, the king is often a reflection of the people he leads. This is why you'll hear the phrase, and in a democracy, you get exactly what you deserve. Spend all the time you want complaining about your leadership, but it is precisely what it is that we deserve. And we Christians have got to stop thinking that what we are going through is abnormal in America. This is America. It's abnormal to Christianity. Um, we get Proverbs like this, Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Same thing there in chapter 16. It is an abomination to kings to do evil for the throne is established in righteousness. 
So a king who leads in justice, a nation that is dominated by justice, will not only practice uh, will not only practice equality, but they will prosper not just economically, though that's what we hope for, but really in righteousness. Here's the third one: strength. The language used here in these opening verses might be striking to the American reader. Look at the end of verse four. We we read it earlier. Crush the oppressor, which then opens up in verse five. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. You see, you see there that, that um, the, the, the crushing the oppressor is tied to the to, uh, oppression is an act of injustice. And so, so part of prospering in righteousness is you don't tolerate unrighteousness. You don't give voice to uh, oppression, right? And so you crush the oppressor and, and that those who oppress, those who are wicked, may fear the king. So, so we see the role that, that uh, government plays here. Now, we are squeamish with this sort of language because we have never lived under tyranny. So we take this for, for, for granted. Uh, we never have never feared violent barbarism showing up one day. We haven't really feared that. Like, for example, we debate walls in this country. We debate it, which means I'm not going to tell you this, that, or the other right now. We debate it. You know who didn't debate this? The ancient world. The ancient world is what left oppressors, tyrants, and barbarians outside. To this day, you can visit Hadrian's Wall in England. The whole point of Hadrian's Wall was that was the boundary of Rome in what we now call the United Kingdom. Beyond that wall was barbarism, and Rome cannot promise your security. It still stands to this day. Many walls exist to this day where there is the fear of oppression. And so the idea is that the king in righteousness would protect his people. This is justice. And justice is not just about protection. It is about addressing uh, the oppressor, the tyrant. That word crush is an important word. It, it means to break into pieces. It means to crumble it can describe military destruction, like in Psalm 94. It can describe, on the other end, how tyrants treat the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. You can see Isaiah 3 and Proverbs 22 for that. But at the end of the day, what it is that we see here is there cannot be peace, there cannot be justice unless wickedness is addressed. Tolerating criminality or hostile military threats is not good for the people trusting you to keep them safe, right? We, we get this, right? The government bears responsibility to promote peace, which comes by in the domestic form through courts, through police, through all of that. But at the international, uh, with, with diplomats, with ambassadors, through, through, through peace talks, and yes, through military, like, like there is the soft arm of justice. There is the strong arm of justice. Look at some of the American images that we have on your quarters, for example. Look at what is in the talons of the bald eagle. A symbol of peace, a symbol of war. The whole point is, is that we will be strong in the name of justice to protect our people. Well, the ultimate hope of the psalm is given in verse 6. Uh, May... Uh, he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. This is the ultimate hope. This is clearly looking forward to what might become with the reign of the new king. We still do this today. Well, one of the things that I've noticed in politics is 
if you want to run for office, you need to exaggerate everything. Have you noticed this? Uh, has anyone noticed it with commercials that may be on your telly? You exaggerate yourself, the good guy. You exaggerate your opponent, the bad guy. The gooder you make yourself look and the badder you make your opponent look, right? Because at the end of the day, we vote based off of fear, right? Let's be honest. Right? It's, anyways, I don't want to chase that rabbit. But uh, the, the, the two examples that came to mind, I'll use a Democrat, I'll use a Republican. You remember the messianic hope of President Obama with hope and change, right? That was messianic. I, I remember the halos over his head everywhere in, in the media, right? Google it, all right? But he was followed by someone else who had messianic hope. It's going to make America great again, right? right? This is what you got here. Let the king who is being crowned, let it be that uh, rain that falls on mown grass, right? We take mowing grass for granted, that is a sign of wealth. You know why you mow your yard? You have the time to mow it. You have, you, you have the facilities to mow it. You have the land to mow it. In the ancient world, you know what you did with that spare land? You farmed it, right? You were cutting down, cutting down trees to build a cabin, right? So to mow a, a lawn was rare in the ancient world. We didn't really start doing it until the last 150, 200 years here, here in America. So regardless, at the crowning of the king, the Jews had prayed and they were called to pray. The king would bring with him justice. Let us do the same. Secondly, we need to pray for peace. Uh, pray for peace. There we go. Pray for peace. Justice secures peace. The psalm rightly understands that a righteous king will promote justice and as a result will promote peace. He is not tyrannical. He is righteous, right? That's the problem is often we think I can protect my people if I just kill everyone else. That's tyranny. If you are tyrannical towards those on the outside, you will eventually become tyrannical to those on the inside. The call here is that of a righteous king who rules in righteousness. I love the language there in verse 7. Uh, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Isn't that, isn't that awesome language? Till the moon be no more. When will the moon be no more? It's messianic, isn't it? the end of days, where the sun itself will not be in the new heaven and the new earth. There's no need for it. God will be its light. I love that. I'd, I'd never read that before. Well, the vision is encapsulated in verses 8 through 11. We don't really have time to go in great detail. What I want us to see is, is it is a vision of global dominance. And that is, is a vision of unity. It's an inversion of Babel. Um, so the vision, remember, of Israel is that Israel was to be a new Eden. So as Israel's borders expanded and encompassed more and more land, the people of God would expand with it. Right? This was the vision Adam was given, right? He was put in a garden in the midst of wilderness. As he worked the ground, he expanded the, the, the reach of the garden. And so God's presence, glory, his, pre, his, his, his work among his people would encompass the globe. This was Israel's vision to be a light among the nations. Now, You'll see there, verse 8, I, I, I think this is worth, worth mentioning. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river, that's the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. Um, I love this ad. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, right? Why is dentistry so important? It's because what's wrong with this picture is he's missing eyebrows. Did you notice that? No, you noticed his teeth, didn't you, right? That's the first thing, we have, male, female, young, oh, first thing. You, this is a great ad. This is a good ad. This is what ads ought to be. It's creative. It gets to the point, and now I feel like I need to go see a dentist, right? 
I don't need my eyebrows plucked, right? Because no one's going to notice. I need my teeth fixed, right? Now, the reason I show this is when I read verse 8, my Americanism comes in. Does your Americanism come in? Read it again. This is, I'm reading ESV. Um, May he have dominion from sea to shining sea, right? I read that a thousand times, and every time I added a word shining in it, right? But you, you get it, right? This, this, is, this is typical Americanism, right? Uh, because what we mean from sea to shining sea is the Atlantic on the east to the Pacific on the west. The vision that the writer has here is global, Right? And you can read the rest of it. You, you can see down there in verse 10, for example, may the kings of Tarshish on one end and the coastlands on the other render him tribute of Sheba to Seba. I think that's a play on words. From one end to, to another. May all kings, verse 11, bow down before him. All the nations serve him. What's the point here is that there would be global dominance of the king of Israel, not through military mights. Right? That's important. Um. It is it, because that is what Rome did. That's what Greece did. That's what Persia, Babylon, and Syria did. The vision here is the ever-expanding work of the Garden of Eden. We saw that actually this morning when it, when it, it told us from Solomon's kingdom was from this close to Egypt to all the way up over here. And what the writer's trying to tell you is the borders of Israel are, expa- are expanding. God is among his people. And we all, all understand in this context, right, why this is so important is that mankind is naturally tribal. Now, growing up, we were tribal in America in forms of our sports teams. And the reason we have fun with sports teams is we take them very seriously, but we take them loosely at the same time. That's why we can joke about UK U of L, and you can tell me everything terrible about U of L, and I can turn around and say UK fans are just as bad, and we go home, have fried chicken, and act like nothing happened, right? Sports allowed us to be tribal without being violent and crazy. Increasingly, though, we're becoming tribal in more serious and dangerous areas. Why? Because we are naturally tribal. We put up walls. We, 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 we put up gates. We build neighborhoods. We, we, we say that my people with my skin color and my background and my socioeconomics and my gender and my whatever it is, this is my group. And my group is always right and all other groups are always bad. I want you to notice how the left and the right are talking about each other. It is tribal, and Christians cannot engage in that sort of tribalism. It's not good. If you cannot see the sins of your own people, you are part of the problem because we must address sin wherever it is to be found. And what tribalism does is allows us to justify our own sin and brokenness and weaknesses while exaggerating the sins of, of the other tribe. I'm always wearing the white hat. They're always wearing the black hat. This is a Western. Someone's got to win. It's dangerous, dangerous territory. The vision here is that the people of God would triumph so much that they would come to the king of Israel and therefore to the God of Israel and submit to him. That's the vision here. And by that, we will have peace. So see, this is a messianic vision. No king of Israel ever accomplishes anything close to this. But the vision is let the day come. When all the nations will lay down their arms and pick up their farming equipment. And we will serve one king who will reign until the moon ends. Well, we must move quickly. Pray for the vulnerable. Pray for the vulnerable. The righteous king rules with justice, secures peace. 
all the while recognizing the needs of the vulnerable. We've already seen hints of this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Just, just note the language. In verse 12, he, he, he highlights both the needy and the poor. He is one who listens to the needy and he helps the poor. This reminds me of uh, two Proverbs of Solomon. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Isn't that interesting language? But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 29.4, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. That's significant. By the way, I think conservative Christians need to be concerned. The idea of helping the needy is somehow a liberal call. We really got to guard that. And that's the problem with tribalism. That'll give me enough trouble. Verse 13 highlights the king cares for the weak and the needy. He has pity on the weak and he saves the lives of the needy. Verse 14, he wars against oppression, including the common uh, oppression of government and values their life. Verse 14 may be worth highlighting. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. He rules with justice. History is replete with endless examples of how the powerful oppress the poor, take advantage of the vulnerable and punish the needy. And government is particularly vulnerable to this temptation. Let's look finally. We are called to pray for the king. Remember, this, this whole psalm is a prayer. And it is a prayer to intercede on behalf of the king who is being crowned. And so you're praying for him that he would rule in justice. He would secure peace. He would care for the vulnerable. And so there is the reminder here in the prayer that we would pray regularly for our civic leaders. And I don't want to spend forever on this. I think a lot of it is pretty straightforward. Remember that the task of polit political leadership is immense. Uh, many of you all know the, the work I do at the Capitol, and one of the things I've found is the weight on the shoulders of a state leader is overwhelming at times. Um, and it's, 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 it's difficult. And often I think that what we do in the realm of politics is we think, if I were in their shoes, I would do better until we discover what it's like to be in their shoes. I assure you, you do not want to be in the shoes of political leadership. Uh, when, when we were in Breckenridge County, we had a man elected uh, to a county office, and he was the best friend of one of our members, right? And, and so it was a big deal that this person won. Everyone was excited for you know our member's friend, right? And the whole time, uh, our member is going on about how I keep telling him he needs to drop out of this race. Who in the right mind would want this position? And sure enough, he was there when his friend won the election. The results came in. Everyone's happy. He says, before the night was out, people were lining up outside of his house asking him if he could uh, find money in the county budget to pave their driveways. <laughs> right? You want that headache on you? I don't think you do. I don't think you do. I remember when I interned with a pastor uh, when I was in high school. And we talked a lot about how to protect your time and your family and stuff like that. And he goes... You, you have no idea how often I get calls from people wanting me to help them get raccoons from out underneath their house. And I've had to say that raccoon will sit until the morning. I'm eating dinner with my family, right? Now, I'd much rather deal with a raccoon than to have endless emails, constant calls, and angry media, and false accusations 24 hours a day. Um, we need to pray for our political leaders. And the Bible is very clear that we are called to do that. And we must pray for the leadership we have and for the leadership we will one day have. 
One of the things I, I, I give a simple advice to young adults and youth is, is that they should be right now praying for their future spouse. Because they're out there somewhere. Maybe they've already met them. Maybe they haven't. You should be praying for them. And while you're praying for them, pray that you would become the sort of person that they would want to marry. Something good about that. I think we could apply that to government leadership. We would do well to pray for current and future leaders. In November, we will elect every constitutional office in the state of Kentucky. And, and in 2024, we will be electing our next president. Aren't you excited about that? Uh, you thought the election before that was rough, or the election for that was rough, right? They just, but then again, we, we become tribal. What do you expect? What do you expect but violence in the streets? And we act like the election of a president is everything. What do you expect from pagans who do not have faith in Jesus Christ? If there is no sovereign God, then your sovereign is the one who is sovereign. That's a scary place to be. Scary place to be. Well, while we're praying for that, why don't you start praying for the president in the year 2044? I have no idea what that's going to be like. We are called to pray. And that's the idea of the psalm, whether it was first given with Solomon or, or whatever it might be. The idea is that the truths found in the psalm would be applied every time there was a new king. It's the same hope, and that the people would pray continually. Look at there in verse 15. Long may he live. Long may he live. The ancients understood that longevity was the best policy for prosperity. In ancient Rome, they went through three Caesars in a single year, created all kinds of problems. Whereas Augustus served for decades. When would you rather live in the Roman Empire when you have a, a, a somewhat competent leader for decades or three people who are just killing each other because they want a throne? Long may he live. And then it says, may prayer be made for him, the king, continually. Read that again and again and again. I have found, even among Christians, we pray earnestly for political leaders we like, but not for the ones we didn't vote for. We have got to be better than that. Well, and then it tells us why we should pray for our political leadership, verses 16 to 20. Prayer secures abundance, verse 16 and 17, because at the end of the day, all blessing comes from God. And remember, what was the key to prosperity we saw earlier? Righteousness. Righteousness. We do not hope that the our, our civic leaders will bring with, it, with them righteousness, but we understand they are a reflection of our nation. So the work of the church is vital here. So we pray for the well-being, the wisdom of our leaders, that we will be blessed. It is possible that God will use the political party and the political leaders of people you did not vote for. And finally, we pray that God is glorified. Right? Verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. This is the ultimate hope, isn't it? Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. It's interesting, isn't it? The prayer is not that the king's glory will fill the earth, but that God, even through the king, will be glorified through the earth. That's a different task, isn't it? That requires a whole lot more humility. And it requires prayer. I reject to believe that when the people of God pray, we are not doing enough. The problem is we are not doing enough prayer. Well, in 1877, President Rutherford B. Hayes was inaugurated as the 19th president of the United States. His inauguration was 
pretty controversial. The election that brought him on was close. I believe he was one of those who didn't win the popular, but he won electoral. I think he went to, to the House of Representatives, but you could do your own research on that. Um, in fact, he, he was officially inaugurated in secret in the presence of then outgoing President Ulysses S. Grant. U.S. Grant. So kind of a controversial thing. But on the day of his inauguration, the ceremony, he did what every president had done since George Washington is a Bible was presented and he put his finger on a passage of scripture, raised his hand and gave the oath of office. So help me God. The one of the clerks of the Supreme Court was the one holding the Bible for him and made note of where his finger fell. Admittedly, I'm assuming this, that he, he just randomly opened the Bible because the Psalms are right, he's quoted from Psalm 118, is right in the middle of the Bible. So he opens it up, he just places his finger there randomly and has it, right? But the clerk underlined with a pencil the passage that President Hayes had, had pointed to and saved it and gave it to his wife. Can I read the passage to you? Do you want to know? Of all the passages in the Bible, what did the new president of the United States? Here it is. Psalm 118.12. Add this to memory. They compass me like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. This is King James. For in the name of Yahweh, the Lord, I will destroy them. <laughs> I'd, I'd pick a better verse, right? <laughs> now that's just... What are the chances of something like that? Well, when Mrs. Hayes, the president's wife, discovered the verse that her husband pointed to at his inauguration, she, she laughed because she said uh, President Hayes was, quote, too kind-hearted to destroy anything. I think there's something good about that, isn't it? I don't know much about the faith of President Hayes. I just find that to be a funny story. But what we need in leadership... What we need in, in our civic leaders is ones who will rule with justice, who will secure peace, who will look out for the vulnerable. And what we need from the church is a kingdom of people who will pray continually, day in and day out, for their wisdom and our neighbor's well-being. Well, let's take this to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would help us.